to begin, I want to draw your attention to the fact that for the past 212 years, the United States government has been receiving anonymous contributions for voluntarily self-imposed fines. Did you know that? People have stolen or defrauded the government and they can't live with themselves for doing that and so they're making these contributions to this fund and it can be for a variety of things. You can look up some of the examples of why they've received funds. Someone sent in money for stealing army blankets and keeping them as souvenirs. Another person sent in Hear this, nine cents because they knowingly reused a three cent stamp. And if you realize the, the amount of stamps, you know how long ago that was. It's been a while since we've had stamps that cheap, right? But they just, I reused the three cent stamp and they sent in nine cents to this fund, believe it or not. I read about a widow, she discovered um, the next year after her husband had passed that he cheated the government $50 on his last year's tax form and so she quickly wrote a check out for $50 and sent it on to the United States government. Does anybody know what the name of this fund is where all this proceeds are going? The federal Conscience Fund. That's what it's called. And some people are still trying to put their consciences to rest. There was a letter given to the IRS. Dear IRS, I've not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. In close, you'll find a check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. the Federal Conscience Fund. If you've been watching the news like I have, seeing all this wickedness and evil that's transpired in different parts of our country, some people would argue that those individuals have a conscience at all. But the truth is, friends, God has made each of us with a conscience. And you say, well, what is a conscience? It is an internal awareness or a sense of abiding by or transgressing moral standards. And when you think of that definition of what is a conscience, you should know as well as I do that there are feelings of great joy when we think, when we speak, when we act right act in line with moral standards, right? We've experienced that great joy when we live that way. But we've also experienced feelings of guilt when we violated our conscience, when we've done wrong. And therefore, I ask you, is it wise to let your conscience be your guide? Would you say that's good advice to give to someone? Give me some feedback. What do you say, church? Do you like that advice? Okay, I can understand why some say yes. Would anybody say no? 
I don't like that advice. I would say, right down the middle, it all depends, right? It depends on whether or not your conscience is awake. You know as well as I do that we can dole or we can suppress our conscience. And here's how it works. We know something's wrong, we're tempted to do it, and in that moment, what does our conscience do? It screams what? No! And so we come at that from a different angle, and what does our conscience do the second time? Doesn't scream, but it says, nope. And then we come at it a different angle. And what does our conscience do this time? It whispers, no. And then we come at it an even different angle. And all of a sudden, we don't hear anything from our conscience. And what happens? We indulge in our sinful pleasure. So it's possible to dull or to suppress our conscience. And sadly, a person's conscience can become so seared to the point where they don't feel anything. They don't listen to anything. They just proceed with reckless abandon, sinning, with no sensitivity to anyone around them, just completely cruel. And that's what we're seeing on the news in some of these wicked and evil accounts lately. Their conscience is so seared that they can do these acts that they've done. So as you can see, letting your conscience be your guide is not always the best advice. James Montgomery Boyce kind of explains in a clever way why it's not the best advice. Your conscience is like a trained circus dog, he says. You whistle once, he stands up, right? Whistle twice, rolls over. Whistles a third time, plays dead. And I just showed you that coming at sin and temptation from different angles until you hear nothing. So your conscience, it's only a trustworthy guide when it's controlled by the Holy Spirit, when it's informed by God's word, which is a true source for what is right and wrong, right church? And when it is controlled by the Spirit of God and informed by the word of God, listen to your conscience. But if it's not, be careful letting it be your guide. As we return to our Joseph series in Genesis, where we left off is his 10 brothers. They had sold him into slavery and they are striving here all these chapters forward of trying to suppress their guilty conscience to get this feeling out of their lives. It's been 22 years since they did what they did to Joseph. And to them, Joseph, they wanted to be just, hey, he's out of sight and we want him out of mind as well. We want to be able to just continue on with our lives. But God, as you're going to notice here in this text, was about to awaken 
their consciences. So I encourage you to open your Bible and join me in Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42, and as we look at just a chunk of this narrative this morning, we'll pick it up next week, we will discover some answers to this key question that we're going to be honing in on this morning. And that question is, how does God deal with a guilty conscience? How does God deal with a guilty conscience? First of all, from this narrative, you'll notice that God may use a severe crisis to awaken your conscience. I realize it's been a while since we've been in our Joseph series, so just remind you of chapter 41 a little bit. In chapter 41, Joseph was used of God to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And in that process, he told Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of plenty, Pharaoh, and it's going to be followed by seven years of severe famine. And Joseph suggested to Pharaoh that you appoint a leader to be in charge of storing grain during the years of plenty so that we'll have food to eat during the severe years of famine. And Pharaoh, chapter 41, could see the Spirit of God was upon Joseph, making him discerning and wise. And so he, right then, right there, appointed Joseph to be that man. He made Joseph, right there, the prime minister of Egypt. And just as God said in chapter 41, seven years of plenty happened and Joseph stored grain in great abundance, verse 49, like the sand of the sea, more than could be measured. But now, just as God said, there was severe famine over all the earth, verse 57. So that's what's been going on. That leads us into understanding chapter 42 better. So join me, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he informed his sons about it. But every time he brought the subject up, They avoided eye contact with him. That's what we're seeing in this verse. Instead, what were they doing? They were just staring at one another. So imagine the father trying to talk to 10 of his boys and Reuben's looking at Simeon and Simeon's looking at Levi and Levi's looking at Judah and nobody's looking at Jacob. They're each trying to figure out what the other is thinking. And Jacob was frustrated by their inactivity, said, verse 1, to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. And so as you're paying attention to this narrative, Jacob has already said one word two times. What's that word? Egypt. Egypt. He didn't have a problem with that place, did he? He wasn't faced. But there's this old saying, never speak of rope in the house of a hangman. Have you ever heard that old saying? Well, take that old saying and change it a little bit. Jacob's ten sons wish the saying would say, never speak of Egypt in their house. And you're saying, why? What was the problem with Egypt? Every time they heard Egypt, Egypt, it jarred their guilty conscience. Why? 
Well, we'll go back to chapter 37. I'll show you on the screen here. It took him back to the day when the Midianite traders passed by his brothers and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to where? Egypt. So when they're hearing that word Egypt, you know what I'm thinking they're hearing? Clank, 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 the sound of coins falling into their hands for selling their brother as a slave to Egypt. It's almost like they could re-see the anguish on their brother's face and hear the shrill of his voice as he begged them not to do what they were doing. It took them right back to that moment. For the past 22 years, they had been lying about what truly happened to Joseph. They dipped his robe in the blood of a goat and they led their father, and you can imagine everybody else around, and believing that a fierce animal had devoured him and torn him to pieces. And so they just kept saying this story right here over and over, not only in their minds, but everybody around trying to convince themselves that, yes, this is true. This is exactly what happened to Joseph. But deep down, their nagging conscience prevailed. And now they were forced to travel the same route that they watched slave traders use as they hauled their brother Joseph away. So we move to verse 3. Ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt in order to stay alive. And you can just think about this trip Imagine every step closer to Egypt was a step that just pricked their guilty conscience. Caused them to just relive the dreaded sound of their brother screaming and crying for help as he was chained and led away from them. They were shuddering at the possibility that they might actually run into Joseph in Egypt. They dreaded this. Verse 4, but Jacob, as you can see here in this verse, he never stopped grieving over his favorite wife, right, Rachel. And because of that, he never stopped grieving over his favorite son, Joseph And so what happened? He did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers for he feared that harm might happen to him. Verse 5, thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. I say it's safe to take it from these brothers. You cannot effectively sweep sin under the rug and think that time will just take care of it, can you? They had tried that for 22 years and it still was there and not dealt with. Their sins against Joseph, I can just see it in this text, just vividly flashed before their minds at this moment. 
And so understand, God may use a severe crisis like a famine in this case to awaken your guilty conscience. Second, God may use an unpleasant treatment to awaken your guilty conscience. Look with me at verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and, listen to this, bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground why am I pointing that out to you because if you read Genesis 37 well you know that Joseph had two dreams and in both dreams what did he see happen his brothers doing what bowing down before him and they hated him for these dreams and him indicating that there would be a day where he would probably rule and reign over them. And here that day is. And they're doing exactly what those dreams revealed. And Joseph saw his brothers, verse 7, recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. And some people read this and think, Joseph was a jerk here. He was wrong for doing what he did to the brothers. But I would say, let's not maybe go that far yet. Because Joseph knew his brothers better than anyone. And he knew that his brothers were hard-hearted, calloused men. We've read that. We have studied some of their hard-heartedness and some of their wickedness and some of their evil. Just for sake of review real quick, Genesis 34 under his brothers Simeon and Levi's leadership. They killed Hamor, they killed his son Shechem, they killed all the men, they captured and plundered that city, all for Shechem defiling their sister Dinah. And then in chapter 35, you read about his brother Reuben dishonoring his father by sleeping with his father's concubine Bilhah. And then chapter 37, they did what they did to Joseph, fully knowing he was their father's favorite. And then in chapter 38, both of Judah's sons were so wicked, the Lord took them. And then Judah himself went into his daughter-in-law, and she conceived by him. So I'm just giving you examples here. They were rough men. And so God used Joseph's rough words, verse 7, to awaken their consciences. He said, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Verse 8, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And some people wonder, well, why wouldn't they? I mean, they knew what he looked like. How did they not recognize him? Well, he was risen to a place of second in charge in Egypt, and you don't wear slave clothes in those positions, right? He was dressed in royal Egyptian garments. He spoke to them through an interpreter. They didn't recognize him. But verse 9 says, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And I really like what theologian Robert Candlish thinks about the significance of the phrase, remembered the dreams. Listen to what he wrote. He said, if Joseph were left to himself, he would have revealed his identity in a moment. But he was restrained by God who was using him for the salvation of his brothers. It was the Lord that brought the dreams to his remembrance, and Joseph recognized the Lord in this. At once he perceived that his situation of his brethren coming to him is of the Lord, 
It's not a common occurrence. It's not mere casual coincidence. The Lord was there in that place, in that business, and therefore the Lord must control the whole scenario and fix the time and manner of discovery. And so that's why that phrase is really key there in verse 9. It goes on and says that he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no. It's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. Did any phrase jump out at you that they replied to Joseph with? We are honest men. Oh, really? Does their track record speak to being honest men? Genesis 34, they deceived Hamar and Shechem and all the males of that city before they killed them. Genesis 37, they handed their father Joseph's special coat dipped in goat's blood so that he would believe what? Oh, he was devoured by a vicious animal and torn to pieces. It had to be if you found this coat dipped in blood. Well, who dipped the coat in blood? They did. They deceived their father. Verse 38, Joseph deceived Tamar into believing that he would give his youngest son to her in marriage. He already lost two wicked sons. And he's like, I'm not sending another son and letting him die. But he deceived her into believing he was going to do that. So this so-called honest men statement here just kind of rings a little bit like a lie right and these so-called honest men go on to tell joseph we your servants were 12 brothers the sons of one man in the land of canaan and behold the youngest is this day with her father and listen to this one is no more these honest people say one's no more, but did they really know that? Did they really know that one's no more, right? But they're, hey, we're honest people. But when they had to state that one is no more, what comes to the center stage of their thoughts? Something they've been trying to suppress and sweep under the rug for 22 years, and then boom! Boom! There he is again. Who is it? Joseph. Back in the center of their minds. Talk about having your conscience awakened. Well, we go on in this narrative, verses 14 through 17. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. But this shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, let him bring your brother. While you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there's truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And even though this text does not say anything about this, there's no clear thinking here most bible scholars believe that joseph gave the same kind of unpleasant treatment to them that he received from them earlier in genesis 37 so let's kind of see how that kind of parallels 
what they did to him and what he's doing to them. In Genesis 37, 14, when his father sent him to his brothers, he sent him to see if it's well with his brothers and with the flock and bring him word. And when he did that, you know very vividly in chapter 37, they oppressed him. Well, now what is Joseph doing to them? He is oppressing them, right? They, verse 14, you can kind of see it, probably accused him of spying. Oh, you're coming here to spy on us about the evil, wicked things we're doing, and you're going to go rat us out to the Father, aren't you? They accused him of spying, but now he's accusing them of spying. They threw him into a pit, and what did he do, verse 17? Threw them into prison. And so understand that God may use an unpleasant treatment to awaken your conscience, and God may also use a painful place to awaken your conscience. Verse 18 and 19, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you'll live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Prove to me that you're honest. Say so, so that your words will be verified. And you shall not die. And they did so. So as you read all this, it's safe to say that Joseph recognized them. The Bible tells us that a couple times. He remembered their deeds. And even though Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him, what's happening? They're starting to remember their deeds as well. You can see their consciences being awakened. Verses 21 and 22, look at how it captures this. They said to one another, in truth, we are all guilty concerning Joseph in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So clearly, these brothers knew what God said to Noah way back in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, right? That there would be reckoning for a life that's taken. Blood for blood that was shed. And even though they didn't literally shed Joseph's blood, Reuben, you can see here, assumed that they were guilty of his blood. It took 22 years for them to finally remember the unpleasant treatment that they gave Joseph. And now they're reaping what they sowed. Genesis 37, they sowed those seeds. They did what they did to Joseph because they wanted what they wanted. And as the Bible says, you reap what you sow. And they were certainly doing that. The tables were turned on them. They were on the receiving end of an unpleasant treatment. They were stuck, as you see here, in a painful place for three days. Their consciences were being awakened has that ever happened to you before? I'm not going to open the floor for testimony. But I was studying this and I remembered a moment where my conscience was awakened. 
I was talking to Kristen about that moment where um, it was, happened to me in college. I felt like I was treated like garbage by two so-called friends. I would say that they betrayed me. They deeply hurt me. I was angry. I was upset. I wanted to react. And then all of a sudden, my conscience was awakened. I was like, oh my. I did this to some friends earlier in my life. Oh, I bet you they felt like I feel when I did this to them. And this is before the cell phones were readily available. I pursued after trying to find out where they live, what's their phone number, and I called them up and I confessed my sin to them and I asked them for forgiveness. Years later, it was awkward. Um, Thankfully, they forgave me. It was the right thing to do. And that's what's happening here in the lives of Joseph's brothers in this text. 22 years later, their conscience is awakened. Oh, we did this to Joseph. Oh, verse 21, you see it so vividly. They said, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them and then he turned away from them and wept. Joseph put his brothers in confinement to give them some time to think about what they had done. But it also gave him some time to think about what he was going to do. And I really like what Boyce said about them being in custody. He said, solitude is necessary for Christian life and growth under any circumstances. To grow, we must spend time with God. We must escape from our slavery to things. We must step aside from the busyness of everyday life. But if this is true for everyone in every spiritual state, it's certainly true of one who is cherishing some distant, unconfessed sin and who's hoping that God has forgotten about it. With such a soul, God will frequently shut the person up from normal activities and reach him or her there. And so they are shut up for three days, and God was certainly reaching them there. Three days in prison certainly caused them to start thinking about life from a spiritual vantage point. You can hear it. They thought about their sins, They acknowledge that their sin has consequences. And as Joseph thought about what he would do, he realized in those three days, if I only send back one of my brothers, that's going to be more than my father will be able to handle. I can't do that. And so he changed gears, verse 24, returned to them, spoke to them. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So God may use a painful place to awaken your conscience, but be assured that God will always use extravagant kindness to lead you to repentance. And we see that here in the remainder of this text we want to look at this morning. You see Joseph, verse 25, responded with extravagant kindness as he gave orders to fill their bags with grain 
and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Joseph did what he did here to awaken them so that they would fear God and then repent. That's what he wanted with this. And then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and they departed. You can see on the map, they were far from home, about 225 miles away. And so it was very, very gracious for what Joseph did here. Not only did he give grain for all the family members, but he gave it to them for free. Everybody else was paying for it. They got grain for free. And that's not all he gave them. Notice what else he gave them. Provisions for that three-week journey home. Do you see the extravagant kindness that Joseph did for his brothers here? Verse 27 and 28, as we wrap this up. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack, and he said to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, notice, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? See, when they saw that money in each of their sacks, they knew God was bringing their sin, their guilt, just right through the front door and out into the open. Theologian and Old Testament professor Alan P. Ross, he helps us understand the significance of these tests that Joseph gave these brothers and how they were so important in the overall grand scheme of Genesis and God's redemptive plan. He wrote, Joseph's test of his brothers were important in God's plan to channel his blessing through the seed, the offspring of Abraham. God had planned to bring the family to Egypt so that it might grow into a great nation. But because the people who had formed that nation had to be faithful, the brothers needed to be tested before they could share in the blessing. Joseph's prodding had to be subtle. The brothers had to perceive that God was moving against them so that they would acknowledge their crime against Joseph and demonstrate that they had changed. And so Joseph tested his brothers. He wanted to find out what do they really think about God? What is their attitude towards my father right now? What is their attitude towards my younger brother, Benjamin? And when we look at verse 21 of chapter 42, we can see that they were already in the process of being changed. Because the way they were now thinking in Genesis 42, right? It is significantly different than how they were originally thinking in Genesis 37. Would you agree? The Bible tells us that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And we have observed in this text how Joseph's extravagant kindness led these rough bunch of sinful brothers to be able to see the sovereign hand of God. It's the first time they ever mentioned God in their lives. And they initially responded to God's act of grace this way, verse 28, their hearts failed them. Meaning they were excessively worried. They were panicked. 
They believe that their situation is hopeless. We just told them we're honest and here we have our money back. He's going to think we are now we're thieves. They literally shook and shuddered in fear. And what they show us is that an unrepentant person before God does not understand grace. He fears God's judgment for the things he's done wrong, knowing that he deserves it and he has a hard time freely receiving God's unmerited favor. The brother's initial reaction here at the end of this text that we're looking at here, very, very similar to the hymn writer John Newton's words when he encountered God's amazing grace. Remember these words? "'Twas grace that caused my heart to what? Fear. And grace, my fears relieved. When you think about that, that just speaks volumes of how amazing God's grace is. Amen? Amen. So Joseph's extravagant kindness towards his brothers is very, very similar to the extravagant kindness that God uses to lead us to repentance. In Genesis 37, 18, Joseph's brothers originally conspired against him to kill him. But I've already told you, they ended up selling him into slavery instead. And all of that just provoked years and years of affliction in Joseph's life. In Genesis 42, 17, Joseph, on the other end, he only put his brother into custody for how many days? three days and he went through 22 years of hardship and affliction you see the grace there friends verse 16 joseph was going to keep nine of them in prison send one of them back to get benjamin but in verse 19 joseph was gracious wasn't he kept only one of them and sent the nine away to go back to get benjamin In chapter 37, they ignored the distress of Joseph's soul, would not listen and beg for them to stop. But here in verse 24, when Joseph saw their distress and when he heard them beg, how did he respond? He wept. See the grace? And then he poured on more grace, verse 25. He gave them full sacks of grain. He gave them all their money back. He gave them extra provisions for the trip. And even though they experienced some consequences, they still got what they did not deserve, right, church? They got grace upon grace upon grace. And God used grace to awaken their consciences. And that's what God does with us. He uses grace to awaken our consciences. He uses grace to cause us to acknowledge that he is holy and to then realize the extent of our sin and our guilt. And what's amazing is when we realize our sin and when we realize our guilt in the presence of a holy God and to still be recipients of extravagant kindness despite our sin, that's just amazing, isn't it? Amazing grace. And there's only one way to respond to grace, extravagant kindness. It's the same way the psalmist responds. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that's within me, bless his holy name. Why? Because he does not deal with us according to our sins. 
nor repay us according to our iniquities. Are you thankful for that good news? Wow. Yes, we experience consequences for our sins, rightly so, but it's nowhere near what we deserve. The discipline that God carries out, it's always done with compassion and firmness, and it's always, always, always intended for our good. And we see Joseph, he does carry out a few consequences, does some discipline here, but it's out of compassion and with firmness. He shows us out of compassion for his brothers. He went away from them and wept. And then he returned and he remained firm and doing what was best for them. And he was loving in this. He took Simeon from them, bound him before their eyes. And Simeon, of all the brothers, was known for being violent and angry. Even the father knew he was a violent, angry man. Genesis 34, very likely Simeon was one that led in the slaughter of all those men. Genesis 37, there's a good chance that Simeon was the one that was leading the charge. Let's kill him! But as 19th century Bible scholar and pastor said, Joseph bound Simeon in prison but he did it to set him free from the far worse chains of his own fierce passions. I like that. So in other words, Joseph, when he bound Simeon, he did it for Simeon's own good. Hoping that God would use that time and confinement to break through his hard heart and awaken his conscience so he'd come to repentance. But Joseph also bound Simeon for the good of his brothers so that they wouldn't be able to sway or influence them in any way on that return trip back home. So that their minds could be continually focusing on the holiness of God. And loved ones, we can expect God to treat us the exact same way. He knows just how much each of us needs to be broken before him. And he may lovingly do what's necessary to awaken our consciences. He may seem like he's being rough toward us, but we must know that he's always filled with compassion and disciplines us for our own good as a loving father disciplines his children. When we repent, we will then be able to share in his holiness. And so for those of you who are listening, be it here or online right now, I realize as we work through a narrative like this that God might be using a narrative just like this to bring to your mind right through the doors of your heart, right out into the open, a past sin that you have yet to biblically deal with. I realize that. God can be doing that right now in your life. And I hope you realize that as long as that sin, whatever it is, you know it and God knows it, as long as it remains unconfessed before God, you will miss out on God's very best for your life. And friend, if that's you this morning, I just want to gently, lovingly urge you to just please stop suppressing your conscience. Please stop trying to deny your sin, your guilt. Don't ignore God. Don't shut off your ears to his pleas from his word to you today, right where you're listening. 
right now to confess that sin before him. I urge you to do that as you're, as you're even listening to me, to confess that sin you've not dealt with to him. Turn to him in genuine repentance, friends. And he promises us in his word, if you do that about any sin in your life, he will forgive you, he will cleanse you, he will allow you to fully experience the sweetness of his extravagant kindness. So deal with that sin if it's in your life, friend. And if you've not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I hope that you understand as you're listening to this that you really are doing to Christ what Joseph's brothers did to him. Jesus loves you. He's concerned about you. He only wants what he knows is absolutely the best for you. And if you've not believed up to this moment, all you've done then is express with your words and shown with your actions that you hate him. Despite his love for you, you hate him. You have driven him from your life. And I praise God that our Savior doesn't just stop when you act that way. But he compassionately pursues after the ones he loves. And he's pursuing after you and I urge you as you're listening to this and you're saying, this is me, he's talking about me, just humbly bow before God. Admit that you've sinned against him. Believe that Jesus died to pay for your sins on the cross. Call upon him to save you. And when you do that, you will then be able to embrace your brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is unlike any other brother. Would you agree, church? Father, have your perfect will be done in each of our hearts. If there's some sin in someone's life that's not been biblically dealt with, I pray you would move them to action so they can get right before you and maybe if it was against others as well, they can get right with them. I pray they'd be quick to do this so that they can fully experience your extravagant kindness that you want to bestow upon them. I pray they wouldn't be proud or think that they can handle this and continue to sweep it under the rug and try to suppress their conscience. I pray they would just allow you to do your work and make them more like your son. And for those who need the son, who need the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help them see that what they're doing to you is the same thing that the brothers did to Joseph. I pray they'd be broken about that and I pray they would turn from their sin and trust in the Lord today. Accomplish your perfect work through your word and your spirit at this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.